Yay! There's a special treat. When I was a young All right, so how do we start out each one of these chapters, you think, when we're talking about these medical conditions? A little bit of anatomy review, that's true. Uh, and some of this is going to be a little bit of a terminology review, but dyspnea, the medical prefix DYS, means what? And P-N-E-A, bad or difficult breathing, that is correct. It is a common complaint, and you're probably tired of hearing me say already that there's about 40 hundred different reasons why somebody might complain of difficulty in breathing, right? If I was to say, give me two words that I'm thinking about right now, what would it be? That's one. No, that might cause, think about a chain, Shock. That's one word, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, You know what? I'm thinking thick principle, me. But, 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 you know, your answers are good, too. They are. So it is a common complaint. There are a bunch of different reasons why someone would complain of difficulty in breathing. Anywhere from there's not enough oxygen in the ambient air to they've got broken ribs and it hurts too bad to breathe, to there's fluid in their lungs so diffusion can't take place like it should. Uh, maybe something's caused all their vessels to dilate to the point where they've lost pressure so they can't circulate the oxygenated blood. No matter what the reason, no matter what link in that chain that we know is the thick principle uh, is broken, end result is the same, difficulty in breathing. Could be a common cold, could be congestive heart failure. Keep medical problems in mind as you obtain history and perform your assessment. Dyspnea can be terrifying to the patient. Now, we didn't, hopefully we didn't get to the point where it was terrifying to none of y'all, but it was uncomfortable when we did our little scenario, our little thing, right? Where you couldn't breathe until you saw an oxygen cylinder. So again, take that feeling that those of y'all that didn't cheat got in your chest and multiply that by a hundred and that's what some of these folks are, are feeling so and, that, and I could definitely see where that would be terrifying to them um, so long story short give them the oxygen early and often never withhold oxygen um, from somebody that needs it and uh, yeah, and just kind of go from there the respiratory system consists of all structures that contribute to breathing. The respiratory system is divided into two main parts, right? What are they? Upper and lower. What divides the two? Yeah, the glottic opening, the space between the vocal cords, which is in the larynx. Um, that is correct. Gas exchange is the process by which deoxygenated blood from pulmonary circulation releases carbon dioxide. Uh, as it releases carbon dioxide, it also picks up what? Yeah, right there in that one cell thick membrane that divides the um, capillary beds from the alveoli. Now we said there was, when we talked about respirations and ventilations and all that, do y'all remember there are two types of uh, um, respirations or two different locations. You remember what they were? 
Well, it is cellular, but it's internal and external, right? Internal is at the cellular level, uh, Christian. The external takes place where? In the lungs, yeah. So. Somebody, Kevin, you lucky man today. I want you to explain to me in detail the neuroregulation of the respiratory cycle. And don't worry if you slip a little bit, your neighbor Michael's gonna pick you up. Oh man, uh, let me find it real quick. Who knows it? I honestly don't know about it. All right, I see some, some hands that I would anticipate. Monica, uh, take a stab at it. Do your best. And you're right so far, but let me just ask you, the, carbon, the chemoreceptors detect something. What do you think that something might be? There you go. It detects that ex excessive levels of carbon dioxide because in an otherwise healthy person, that is what creates that stimulus to breathe, right? A buildup of carbon dioxide. And you're right. Long story short, and I know we have a lot more details to it, but basically, that sends a signal to the brain stem because your brain stem controls your breathing, sends a message down through. Does anybody remember the name of the nerve that runs to the diaphragm? The phrenic nerve causing the diaphragm and intercostal muscles to contract, increase in size and volume, therefore decrease in pressure inside the thoracic cage to where there's a pressure gradient between it and atmospheric air. Air rushes in until pressure is equalized. Now, Cassidy, what makes you stop breathing in? The pressure's equalizing, and then there's a reflex that we talked about. Do you remember that one? No? Cameron. David. The herring brewer reflex in the stretch, stretch receptors of the lungs make, that's what causes you to stop breathing in. Because you don't want to cause any barotrauma to your lungs. So, and that's the active process of respiration. And then what happens next, Christian? You exhale, that's the passive um, process? Yeah, you just relax, right? And, and the chest wall returns to its original size and shape. So that decrease in size causes an increase in pressure to where there's a gradient between the thorax and atmospheric air, but in the opposite direction. So air rushes out until pressure is equalized. And that is the passive process of respiration. If you, if you don't, you, you need to know that. I'm telling you, you just cannot begin to understand right now the ways that knowing that will help you. But it absolutely will help you. So, uh-oh. Oh. What are we looking at here? Yeah, and what, what's happening here in this picture right here? Okay. And what do you think the blue and the red represents here? All right, so the stimulus to breathe comes from the respiratory center in the medulla, 
and that is in the brainstem, obviously. It is an involuntary control of breathing that originates there in the diaphragm. Uh, normal inspiratory reserve volume is about 3,000 milliliters in a male and 2,300 milliliter, milliliters in a female. Normal inspiratory reserve volume is about 3,000 in males, 2,300 milliliters in females. What does that mean, normal inspiratory reserve volume? And somebody look in the book, unless you know it, but don't guess. What is normal inspiratory, let's just say, inspiratory reserve volume, what does that mean? In addition to normal tidal volume. In addition to normal tidal volume. So normal tidal volume is what? 500. Is all that usable? No. How much is? And what we call the other 150? And why are these easy numbers to remember? 350 million Americans. All right. Now, Alex, I think you referred to another term. The expiratory. Yeah, they always talk about inspiratory there, right? Okay, yeah. Mechanical receptors send a signal to the apneustic center to inhibit the inspiratory center and expiration occurs. That's that herring brewer reflex that, that David just told us about. It terminates inhalation to prevent overexpansion of the lungs. And expiration lasts twice as long as inspiration. For, for whatever reason. All right, so, and here's why the prefixes, suffixes, and root words are important. Have you ever heard alveoli called pneumocytes before? Or part of it being the pneumocyte? But what is a site? Cells. What's pneumo? So you, you could get in the right ballpark anyhow, right, if, if you'd never seen it before. Alveoli are made up of two types of cells, or pneumocytes. Type one, allow for better gas exchange. And type 2, make new type 1 cells and produce surfactant. Now, who can tell us who remembers what surfactant does? Yes, sir. When you exhale, right? And what do we call that when the alveoli collapse? Atelectasis. Atelectasis, that's correct. So without that surfactant, they will collapse when you exhale and remove all the pressure out of the airways. But surfactant keeps them, I guess, inflated or intact or, or whatever how you want to word that. But what's the problem? Why is atelectasis a problem? When the alveoli collapse, it does what? Traps air. Traps carbon dioxide a lot of times. So carbon dioxide is naturally or constantly or always in elevated amounts in these people, right, in these patients. So, it so an elevated carbon dioxide is what triggers the next breath. So it becomes problematic and they eventually have to depend on something else to trigger that next breath, a hypoxic drive. Conditions related to ventilation and or perfusion can prevent oxygen from reaching the bloodstream. Pulmonary capillaries allow red blood cells to pass through uh, only in single file. All right. Core pulmonale, everybody write that down because we're going to talk about 
right-sided heart failure. We're going to talk about left-sided heart failure. And even though they're, they're both bad and, and even though, you, you know, and they speak to pul your pulmonary circulation and problems within and then, the, and then the systematic or systemic circulation, but everything's still all connected, right? And if the problem's bad enough on one side, it's eventually going to reach the other side. So don't think they're completely separate and independent because they're not. But core pulmonal is the name that National Registry will use for right-sided heart failure. That is the way they will identify it, most likely. At least that's the way they did in the past. So, and I don't want to get too far ahead here, but, but it's on the slide, so let's talk about right-sided heart failure. What does the right side of the heart, what's it responsible for? What does it really do? It receives the blood from the rest of the body and then sends it where? To the lungs and it returns, right? So the right side of the heart and the right ventricle is responsible for your pulmonary circulation. Does that make sense? Alright, so it's receiving the blood. What do we call the blood that's returning to the heart? Preload. Okay. So, blood's returning to the right side of the heart and it's ejected from the right ventricle, passes through that pulmonic semilunar valve to the pulmonary arteries, right? To the lungs. Picks up the oxygen through the uh, diffusion then returns it to the left atrium and then it goes to the rest of the body. But now, if that pump or the right side of the pump has been affected, if it's not working as effectively as it should and once did, maybe because of a previous uh, myocardial infarction or whatever the case may be, it's not ejecting that full 70 milliliters each time the right ventricle contracts but you have the same amount of blood returning to the heart because that left ventricle's working just fine. You with me? So what happens to the blood? Do I? Well, it's gonna back up, right? Where's it gonna back up to? If you have core pulmonale or right-sided heart failure, where will the blood back up? It's gonna back up from whence it came, right? To, from, and it came from the rest of the body to the right side. Y'all with me? So you're going to have swelling of the feet. Swelling of the hands sometimes. Sometimes swelling of the abdomen. No, I ain't got right-sided heart failure. <laughs> no, I won't hear none of that. Pitting edema and ascites are two terms that are uh, and conditions that are associated with core pulmonale. Basically, anytime blood or any liquid is not moved efficiently by a pump, where will it accumulate? Low-lying low areas, right? So that's why if you see somebody, you walk in and they're having difficulty breathing, maybe they have a history, maybe they don't that they're aware of, but if they walk, you walk in, they're having difficulty breathing, Look at the feet. And if the feet are all swollen, and you can reach down there, and, and not really hard, you don't want to hurt them, but you squeeze the feet, 
And then when you let go, your fingerprints stay indented in their feet. That's because of there's fluid in the feet. That's called pitting edema. They could have it in their hands. You're not as likely to see it in the, in the hands as you are the feet because the feet are lower than the hands. But it would be, if it's both feet, it would be pitting edema times two. If it's, or both hands and the feet, the pitting edema times four. Does that make sense? Okay. These folks usually will have a cardiac history. They normally have had heart attacks in the past or, or something that has damaged the right side of their heart to the point that they can't circulate the blood. Uh, and therefore, the, 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 the liquids accumulate down in the feet. Ascites is when it accumulates around the abdomen. And again, that may pit, it may not pit, but they probably don't need a mash on their old belly anyhow, but whatever. It's right-sided heart failure. Now, what if the damage is on the left side of the heart? And the left side of the heart isn't pumping as efficiently as it should. Where will the fluid back up? In the lungs. Pink, frothy sputum. They might be coughing up pink, frothy stuff. They'll certainly have wet breath sounds. They'll certainly be complaining of difficulty in breathing. That's sometimes in the fields called flash edema. <laughs> I mean, just they've got this chronic condition. And, and the chronic conditions can have an acute acerbation. What does that mean? They have this chronic condition, but something's happened in the short term that's made it really bad. Maybe you got a, a left-sided heart failure. Maybe you develop a upper respiratory infection. I don't know. The edema flashes. Your lungs fill up with water. They've got to have medicine to get that, get that fluid out of their chest. So just remember, chronic conditions chronic yeah, diseases could certainly be affected by acute situations. Just like a diabetic, no matter what's wrong with them, what does it do? Messes up their blood sugar, right? Every time. They can get a cold, it jacks up their blood sugar. Whatever. It's going to jack up the blood sugar. So, Does everybody understand that? The basic concept of the right and the left and where the problems will show up? Again, if it's bad enough, it's going to be everywhere and all over. So, Rising arterial carbon dioxide levels leads to less efficient, less efficient respiratory center. Results of carbon dioxide retention. Um, we talked about this already. But basically, someone who is... Um, a COPD patient, which, what's COPD stand for? Y'all seen the commercials with the wolves and the little piggies in the house? All right, the name alone, chronic tells you what? It's long term. Not, this isn't going to go away. Obstructive. It's blocking something, right? It's a, the, the air passages or airways are being blocked. And in pulmonary, obviously, there you have it. 
Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, the ones when they're talking about the hypoxic drive, they're typically talking about This is where we're going. I'm gonna go ahead and get this out of the way, because this is where I break from the book. Um, COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases. You're talking about emphysema. You're talking about chronic bronchitis, and in certain parts of the country, where let's say coal mines may be. What's that disease? Black lung. Black lung. That 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 falls under the the COPD umbrella as well, and some textbooks list asthma under COPD as well because it is chronic it is obstructive um, but here's the differences emphysema and chronic bronchitis emphysema patient I gave you that piece of paper because I think I got handed that exact drawing way back in the day when I took EMT class and I've always seen it and hell we're going to keep the tradition rolling I gave it to y'all now what patient is that? It is. But which respiratory condition do you think this drawing illustrates? Emphysema. Alright? So emphysema patients are known as pink puffers. Have we talked about this yet? Pink puffers and why? All right, well, let's think about it. Pink, why do you think their skin would get a little bit of a redder or pinkish hue to it? I've already told you the human body compensates for most things, right? If the body knows it can't, it's, ha it's having difficulties uh, bringing in, circulating oxygen and oxygenated blood to all the places that it needs to get to, what's something that the body might do to compensate for that? produces more red blood cells and it produces extra red blood cells to give that extra oxygen carrying capabilities but the red blood cells actually kind of gives them a different color to their skin it's not truly pink okay but you'll when you see it you'll know it but that's why because the body's producing extra red blood cells and that extra iron in there is what's giving them that pink but not really pink color Alright? So why are they puffers? Well, Smokers. listen to me. No doubt about it. Cigarette smoking is the number one cause of all these problems we're going to talk about. And if you ever wanted to put them down, it'll never be easier than it will be today. Because that addiction is just going to get worse and worse and worse. I know. Alright? So put them down. But that's not the point. The point is pink puffers. What do they not have coating their alveoli because of the years of cigarette smoke? Surfactant. So when they exhale and the pressure is relieved out the respiratory tract, what happens to the alveoli? They collapse. And we call that 
atelectasis again, all right? And that traps and retains carbon dioxide, which is going to help trigger that next breath, right? So because of that, because of all the trapped carbon dioxide and the chronic condition of elevated amounts, they begin to breathe off of a backup system known as the hypoxic drive. But But that doesn't answer the question. I kind of got sidetracked. Why puffers? Yeah, they're breathing through pursed lips. Okay. Breathing through pursed lips with the lips kind of close together. Because what does that do? It helps maintain back pressure onto, into the respiratory tract. They don't understand why that makes them feel better, but it kind of makes them feel better because it per, or slows the, the collapse of those uh, alveoli, okay? And if you have a stethoscope on somebody's chest that is an emphysema patient, and, and when those little alveoli collapse and reinflate, collapse and reinflate, it'll be like little clicking sounds that you'll hear in the chest wall. Is that what? You know how they, there's like a term called popcorn lung? I, no, I think that's, I think that that's just because of the alveoli expanding or whatever, but I, no, this, this isn't popcorn lung, but I know what you're talking about, but no. All right, emphysema patients, do you think they will have wet breath sounds or dry breath sounds? Think they'll have wet or dry? Dry. <laughs> they will have dry, non-productive coughs. Well, this says increased mucus. Will that? Does that just mean? See, that's why I tell you the book's wrong. <laughs> let if that's let me see that. <laughs> okay, they might. But they will have a dry, non-productive cough, I promise you, I'm telling you the truth. Now here's the deal, when an emphysema patient develops wet breath sounds, they're, they're toward the end and their emphysema has now progressed into congestive heart failure and they are at the, getting close to the end of their suffering. Because these folks suffer, don't doubt it for a minute. Most of y'all in the room probably has at least seen somebody with emphysema if it's not a family member. So, and I promise you, it's not pleasant for them. So, it is a progressive, chronic progressive disease. It means it ain't gonna get any better, it's only gonna get worse, okay? So, pink puffers, hypoxic drive, they breathe through pursed lips, dry, non-productive coughs, uh, barrel-shaped chest. Why? Why do emphysema patients have barrel-shaped chest? What about the muscles, though? Yeah, they're using the uh, accessory muscles of respiration because they're ha having that difficulty in breathing, so they use their accessory muscles to try to expand that chest wall even further to create more of a pressure gradient to bring in more air 
which hopefully contains more oxygen, right? To do away with that uncomfortable feeling. But what happens if you work muscles hard? They get tired. Well, they get tired, but they kind of build up too, right? Yeah. So that's why their chest will eventually be shaped like a barrel because they're overdeveloping their accessory muscles because of the extra work that, that they have performed just to try to breathe. Does that make sense? All right. So exertional dyspnea. I don't know if that's on that form or not, but what does that mean? These people literally can't, could not walk from here to that door without losing their breath. Okay? They're going to speak one to two word sentences. These will probably be the ones that will have the nasal cannula on and five miles of tubing and a oxygen generator in their living room. I'm not joking about these folks, that's just a reality. Alright? Look on your piece of paper. Is there anything else about the emphysema patient that I haven't mentioned that you think should be mentioned? Alright, now this is this is a this is a strange one. But I am going to mention this. Emphysema patients, a lot of times, if you look at their fingers, their fingertips, at the very end, they'll become rounded. Almost like a, I don't want to say a lizard, but you know how you see, it won't be that dramatic, obviously, but the fingertips will become more rounded. Uh, and I guess it's just because of the poor circulation or something. I don't know that I can truly explain that one, but digital clubbing is associated with emphysema. All right? So, chronic bronchitis. Look in your book and look, find out stuff about chronic bronchitis specifically and throw some facts at me. All right, so. Now, and I'm going to tell you, will emphysema patients wheeze as well? Yes. Yeah, they will. But chronic bronchitis patients, they have excess mucus production. And the bronchioles are spasming as well. So I'm going to put excess mucus. So, and what produces mucus in the, in the airways? What cells? Goblet cells. G-O-B-L-E-T. Goblet cells produce excess mucus in the airways and the bronchioles, those finer, smaller little bronchioles, right before it reaches the alveoli, begin to spasm. So they get smaller and there's extra mucus in there. They're gonna wheeze, but you can see where that might cause a problem, right? You don't have the air getting to and from the alveoli, so they may become a little cyanotic. So chronic bronchitis people 
might be called blue bloaters. Pink puffers and blue bloaters. That's not my sick sense of humor. That's a real thing. So just as a general rule, emphysema patients might be a little thinner. Chronic bronchitis patients may be a little heavier. What's number one cause of chronic bronchitis? Cigarette smoking. Excess mucus, bronchial spasms, blue bloaters. But how do you get diagnosed with chronic bronchitis? What's long? How often? How many times? And Several times a three year. months per year, two years or more. There you go. Three or more months out of the year. Two or more years in a row. If you go to the doctor and you diagnosed with bronchitis, because you can have bronchitis and not chronic bronchitis, but if you get diagnosed or have bronchitis for three or more months out of the year, for two or more years in a row, they say you have chronic bronchitis. What type of cough do you think a chronic bronchitis patient will have? Wet, productive. Emphysema has what? Non-productive. They don't cough off anything. They don't produce. So, is there really anything about these two conditions that you might say is the same, or are they completely opposite, really? Except for the fact they both might wheeze. It's a lot of differences, right? So when your book says, COPD and they want to give you the signs and symptoms of COPD, that's where I differ with them because it depends on which one you're talking about. Alright, I guess that's that's a way to Alright, let's get started back. Um, is there anybody that's at all unclear about hypoxic drive and what that is and the fact that it's a backup system? for those who retain carbon dioxide on a regular basis. Are we all clear on that? Okay. So, and I told you I wasn't gonna get into an acid-base lecture, and I'm not going to, but just, just understand the basic concept for now, that <clears throat> excess carbon dioxide in blood results in respiratory acidosis, okay? And how does it accumulate to the point to where it's now acidotic? What condition though? What's that word on top of that slide? Hypoventilation. Hypoventilation. Breathing is down, acid is up. They are what you call inversely proportionate. If breathing is up, what do you think acid is? Down. Because they are inversely proportionate, right? Causes of hypoventilation, conditions that impair lung function, anything that interferes with that signal coming from the brain stem, anything structurally in the chest wall that prevents it from expanding, it doesn't matter, FIC principle again, right? Any of those things. Conditions that impair the mechanics of breathing, the ventilation, uh, reduced the respiratory drive, all of those things, it doesn't matter. Ventilations are down. Acid is up. If ventilations are up, 
arterial carbon dioxide falls below normal. And hydrogen, which is the acid in, that we're talking about, follows carbon dioxide, if I haven't said that already. Watch your carbon dioxide and whatever it does, that's what your hydrogen does. Tachypnea without uh, psychologic demand for increased oxygen causes respiratory alkalosis. Um, and, and you might have already written this down in some kind of crazy way from a previous lecture, but I want you to write it down again because it is an absolute truth that an acidotic heart will never beat. An acidotic heart will never beat. Turns out an alkalotic heart's not going to beat either. But an acidotic heart will never beat. So, you're an EMT or advanced EMT. What can you do about an acidotic heart? And? and ventilate, right? Even if, no matter what, good, efficient ventilations with supplemental oxygen, because you're putting in more oxygen, so then when they exhale, they're getting rid of what? And what follows carbon dioxide? So if they're acidotic, and you're properly ventilating them with supplemental oxygen, you're, you're pushing them, well, back up that pH scale to where they can get in that 7.35 to 7.45 that they need to have just to, to, to be alive, right? So. I think we've talked about all that. A patient with dyspnea or difficulty breathing may also report air hunger. They can't, they just can't feel, feel like they're not getting enough air. Tightness in the chest. Um, upper and lower airway infections, all right? Croup and epiglottitis. Has everybody got this written down somewhere? Croup and epiglottitis. What patient populations are we primarily talking about here? Pediatrics. Okay, pediatrics. Croup and epiglottitis. Infections may cause difficulty breathing by obstructing airflow to larger airways. Infections may also impair the exchange of gases between the alveoli and the capillaries. All right, so what are the major, National Registry is gonna want you to be able to differentiate between these two respiratory diseases that do primarily affect pediatric populations. But croup, is it caused by bacteria or a virus? Are you guessing? Are you just taking them 50 50 odds? Well, look in the book. Tell me, is croup uh, caused by a bacteria or a virus? It is a virus. It's your lucky day, Mac. All right. 
All right, what does that virus do? How do what part of the respiratory system does it affect? Well, it's kind of like the upper though, right? If someone has croup, what signs or symptoms may they present with? A seal-like barking cough, right? Is there a particular time of year that croup is more prevalent? Yeah, so they're in the house and they're barking with this seal-like barking cough. You take them outside to go put them in the ambulance and they stop doing it. Did you fix them? The cool air calms it. You, you believe it or not, but what, <laughs> what did some people do with croupy babies? Well, even if it wasn't that cold, if they want to stay inside the house, what, 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 what freezer, open the freezer door and hold them in front of the freezer. The cough goes away until you close the door. <laughs> so you ain't sleeping either way, so uh, don't give the child a frostbite. But. So croup is caused by a virus, usually in the winter months, a seal-like barking cough. Does your book tell you anything else about croup? Respond well to humidified oxygen. Humidified oxygen. What else? Rarely seen in adults because the airway is large. Yeah, it is primarily a pediatric condition. P. Ooh, Lord, help me. <laughs> Anything else? Epiglottitis, is it caused by bacteria or a virus? Bacteria. You know that for a fact? Yes. <laughs> how will they present? If they have epiglottitis, how will they present? Okay, Strider. Why? What is Strider to begin with? Let's back up. What is Strider? High-pitched inspiratory sound. That means when they breathe in, you hear this high-pitched sound that means that upper airway is starting to swell shut. It's a partial occlusion of the upper airway. And it's a high-pitched inspiratory sound. Has another name. Anybody remember? No, Strider is also called crowing sometimes. So it's epiglottitis is called by bacteria. They may have Strider. What else is your red flag little, will, will they be running a fever? <coughs> yes. What's your red flag thing that's gonna tell you? Uh-oh, epiglottitis. That dead bang giveaway. Just a sore throat? It'll be so sore that the child will refuse to swallow. So they'll be drooling. Okay. 
Their throat hurt so bad that they refused to swallow, so they would be drooling the saliva that's just accumulating into their mouth. Now, what do you think you're gonna give this child oxygen? Yeah, you will, but you're not going to put that mask right on their face. You may not even run lights and sirens to the hospital because what's going to happen if you frighten or spook this child? Yeah, but what's really bad going to happen? That airway is going to go ahead and swell shut. So you're going to give them blow by oxygen. And don't excite or anger. Because that airway will swell completely shut. Did your book tell you anything else about epiglottitis? It's a bacteria. Croup is a virus. Huh? They'll be drooling because their throat hurts really bad. What'd you say, Curtis? Not necessarily. Croup is primarily a fall and winter thing, but I don't know that epiglottitis has a. Yeah, I've never been aware of one. If they, if it does. So. Right. Acute pulmonary edema. Break that word down. Acute means what? Sudden onset. So can someone with a chronic respiratory disease or condition like emphysema or chronic bronchitis or even core pulmonal, those are all chronic conditions, right? But they can have an acute onset of pulmonary edema. What are they going to complain of? Difficulty breathing. What might their feet look like? And the problem is as simple as this, fluid accumulates in the alveolar sacs, oxygen and carbon dioxide can't diffuse as well through that fluid that's now in a sac that's supposed to be filled with air. It just can't move as well. Severe difficulty breathing. <clears throat> Not all of them that have pulmonary edema have heart disease. You're going to have uh, just regular old bronchitis that somebody could get, right? Or pneumonia, even. Doesn't mean they have heart disease. All right. People with fluid on their lungs, acute pulmonary edema, what might you hear in the lower field? And again, fluids, fluids settle in the low areas, right? So they have fluid in their lungs. It's at least going to start out in the lower fields, right? What breath sounds may you hear that are associated with fluid in the lungs? Would, could be decreased, but you'll hear these adventitious sounds. Wheezing would be lower airway, but gurgling's upper airway. Crackles, rails, ronchi. Ronchi is a really bad version of rails, right? Rails and crackles are pretty much the same thing. You'll hear it a little bit, but Ronchi is the one that there's so much fluid moving when they cough that you don't really need a stethoscope to hear it. You know, you can hear them from across the room. So they will have difficulty breathing, obviously. Orthopenia. What does that mean? Difficulty in breathing while lying flat on your back. Fatigue. 
Why are these people extra tired? What'd you say, Austin? Okay, but why does that make them tired? So they can't produce energy, right? But they're also struggling and working harder to try to breathe, right? So it's like a double-edged sword. They're working harder to do something that's inefficient for what their body needs to, in the first place. All right, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, slow process that disrupts the airways in the alveoli. Cigarette smoking is the most common cause. The obstruction occurs in the bronchioles. Is that true for all of them? That's true for chronic bronchitis, right? Where's the problem with the emphysema patient? The alveoli, because they're collapsing, right? See how they're not the same? Chronic bronchitis results from overgrowth of airway mucus glands, the goblet cells become overactive, produce too much mucus, and then secretes it into the airways, and it gets down to the smaller bronchioles, and then they start to spasm too. That's why they're blue bloaters, because they become a little cyanotic due to uh, the oxygen not, um, not being able to transfer properly. Emphysema patients don't do that. Pneumonia develops easily when the passages are consistently obstructed. Emphysema is the most common form of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and it is characterized by the destruction of alveolar walls related to the destruction of pulmonary surfactant. Again, chronic bronchitis, the problems in the bronchioles, they turn blue. CO, uh, uh -huh. Emphysema patients, Problems with the alveoli, they retain carbon dioxide, so the body compensates by producing more red blood cells, and they breathe through pursed lips and therefore pink puffers. Am I beating this to death yet? What's that fella got? So he's got what though? Emphysema. There you go. What position is he sitting in? Tripod position, barrel-shaped chest. I bet you if you look at his fingertips, they'd be rounded. Patients with acute COPD, you see my problem here, don't you? Complain of shortness of breath with gradual increasing symptoms over periods of days. That might be kind of common, but exhale through pursed lips. That's emphysema patients specifically. Complaint of tightness in the chest and, and constant fatigue. Have a chest with a barrel-like appearance. All that is emphysema. Asthma. Acute spasm of the bronchioles. And, and when we talk about asthma here, I want you to tell me what it sounds really similar to. Asthma is associated with excess mucus production and bronchiolar muscle spasms. Kind of sounds like chronic bronchitis a little bit, don't it? And they will wheeze more so. And again, I'm telling you, emphysema patients are going to wheeze too. But uh, it's going to be more prevalent here. 
asthma results from allergic reactions, exercise, severe emotional stress, or an upper respiratory infection. Basically, you have two general types of asthma. You have extrinsic asthma and you have intrinsic asthma. What did I just say? What is that? What, what's the difference, you think? There you go. Things that are... So, severe emotional stress, what type do you think that might be? All right, so an allergic reaction to some grass clippings or whatever. Extrinsic. Okay. And there are people allergic to exercise in this world. Anaphylactic reactions, severe allergic reactions. What happens to the airway in anaphylaxis? Swell shut, right? So what adventitious airway sound do you think they may produce before their airway shuts down? Strider. Strider, because it's swelling. Well, they, when they breathe in, you're gonna hear it. What does it do to the blood vessels? Dilates them to the point the blood pressure is gonna bottom out. What do these people have to have to stay alive? Epinephrine, because that's going to help them get, get and circulate that oxygen. All right, spontaneous pneumothorax, tension pneumothorax, hemothorax, hemopneumothorax. They're all pretty easy to, to figure out once you, and again, you can break the words down and figure out most of them, but this slide wants to talk about a spontaneous pneumothorax. If something is spontaneous, how does it happen? It usually just kind of happens on its own, right? Um, <laughs> people who suffer spontaneous pneumothorax, and a pneumothorax is an accumulation of air in the pleural space. Something happens to the lung, the lung is injured, air leaks out and gets between those two layers of the pleura, visceral pleura and the parietal pleura, okay? So that's between the two layers is a potential space. It's, not normal, it's normally not a space there, but as the air gets in there, it separates the layers and it becomes a true space. And as the air builds and builds and builds, what also builds in here? And it does what to the lung? Collapses it. It's mutated to something else at that point. Who is most likely, does your book tell you, who is most likely to suffer from a spontaneous pneumothorax? I know the book said, huh? If something is spontaneous, what normally causes it? It's like it's like posi track on a Plymouth, right? It just does. <laughs> if something is congenital in nature, what does that mean? Kind of born with it. There's these things called congenital blebs. It's like a little blister that some people are born with on their lungs. They're going along minding their own business, eating Doritos, whatever. They cough and it pops. Usually, you're talking about tall, slender, athletic males. 
Tall, slender, athletic males are most likely to have congenital blebs and therefore spontaneous pneumothoraxes. How many of y'all know who Ron White is? The comedian, right? That little skit where he says, the, the preacher on TV says, are you sitting in a bean bag eating Cheetos? Y'all know that one? Yeah. You gotta listen to it if you ever heard it because so he's sitting in a bean bag eating Cheetos and do you feel the desire to send me $100? And he said, whew, there for a minute I thought he was talking about me. But yeah, so tall, slender, athletic males, that's where I'm going with this. I, I didn't have to worry about it. If you have to explain a joke, it just really wasn't that funny to begin with, I guess. So, they tell, oh, and, and, and patients on automatic ventilators. I would write that down. So just know, if you've got a patient, and you're monitoring a patient that's on an automatic ventilator, and all of a sudden, oxygen saturation levels begin to drop, somebody needs to check for a pneumothorax. So, the medical prefix pneumo means what? Pneumo? If something's pneumatic, air. Okay. All right. So drop the spontaneous for a minute, and let's just say pneumothorax. The problem is air has gotten into that potential space. The medical root word or prefix, whichever one it is, hemo, means what? So what do you think has gotten between the visceral, parietal, pleura, and a hemothorax? What if they have a hemoneumothorax? Blood in there. Different things cause that. Now, what does your book tell you? If someone has a pneumothorax, whether it be spontaneous or whether it's caused, and, and, and when trauma causes a pneumothorax, you're typically talking about penetrating trauma. Penetrating trauma, okay? No matter what the root cause, if someone has a pneumothorax, how will you know? Can't breathe. Difficulty breathing. One side will breathe. Can't hear the other. Right, so you say you're listening to breath sounds, right? In a pneumothorax, the breath sounds on the affected side will be reduced. You can still hear them, but there'll be an audible difference between the two. They won't be equal bilaterally. Does that make sense? You'll hear that one side, the unaffected side, very clearly but you maybe you barely hear the other side. And then you've got the history of the event. Bullet hole, stab wound, whatever on that side. And you, you could hear the breath sounds, but not as plain as the other side. Okay? I, I'm getting in a minute to what to the other. So what else? Not yet. So reduced breath sounds on the affected side, right? History of the event. Um, When, not, not yet. If they have a bullet hole yeah. in the chest, very quite possibly, yes. Probably. Mm -hmm. All right, so now let's, let's talk about a tension pneumothorax. A tension pneumothorax is a pneumothorax or a hemothorax or a hemoneumothorax, whichever one they had, 
It's gotten to the point to where the pressure is built up to the point where the lung is completely collapsed. Now you will have absent breath sounds on the affected side. You won't hear anything moving at all because it's not. And what was you saying about the trachea, Cesar? Quick, this, the trachea, remember when we did our patient assessment trauma, even though some, we didn't really understand what we were doing, we said we're checking to make sure the trachea is midline. If, which way will it point? The trachea will literally shift in the neck. Will it shift toward the point to the affected side or the unaffected side? Y'all had a 50-50 shot. <laughs> All right, I want you to think about it. Let's say, all right, here's your trachea, it comes down to the carina, right? And then here's your lungs. You've injured this lung, pow, all right? And it's been deflated because pressure is building up inside of this, the pleural space right here, right? And the pressure is pointing, is pushing that way. Which way is that trachea? As the bottom pushes, what's the top going to do? The trachea will always deviate toward the affected side. Just imagine, if you will, there's a, not a hinge or whatever, but a, no, not a hinge. But there you go. <laughs> and it's pushing, it's going to push, push it that way toward the affected side. And again, it doesn't matter if air's causing the pressure or blood's causing the pressure or if air in blood's causing the pressure, it's still pressure. It's still gonna push across that bottom and then the trachea at the top will go toward the affected side. You may or may not ever see tracheal deviation, but if you do, you'll never forget it. Yeah, if, I guess if both lungs are if they have tension on both sides, and you're right, it, it wouldn't move. But even if it's just one side, you got to remember, you may get to the scene before that ever develops. So what has to happen to someone with a tension pneumothorax? Well, let me back up before you answer that question. What type of shock are they about to go into? No. No. There was two traumatic events that we talked about that caused a specific type of shock. What was it, Caleb? Yeah, it's the first time I've asked you and you couldn't give me the answer. Hmm. No. Nobody remembers obstructive shock? Cardiac tamponade and tension pneumothorax will cause obstructive shock. Because it's obstructed, right? All right. So these people have to have needle chest decompression, right? A paramedic has to take a 14 gauge, two inch needle and push it between the second and third intercostal space. And when they poke that needle in and it pops through that pleura and it goes if it's a pneumothorax, what will you hear? Psh, like a bicycle tire. And you can watch O2 sats go straight up and they get to live. If, there's, if it's a hemothorax, what will come out of the needle? 
blood. If it's a hemonumothorax, what will come out of the needle? Blood bubbles. All right. But that's a paramedic skill, so go to school. Plural effusions. It's kind of the same thing, but we have fluid in the plural space now. What patients are we typically talking about when we talk about plural effusions? Uh, fluid may be from irritation, infection, cancer patients. If you, have a, if you get dispatched to a cancer patient, difficulty breathing, it may very well be a plural effusion. Whether it be the, the disease process itself or some of the medicines, you'll see where fluid accumulates into that potential space as opposed to blood or air or air and blood. Plural effusion is the same, it's just it's not air or blood. Associated with cancer patients. Alright. So y'all stretch yourself again.